Well, today we're talking about Jesus coming into the city of Jerusalem. 2,000 years ago, changed everything, changed the world, split history in half, split humanity in half. You're either with Jesus or you're with the world. And I'm so glad that I'm with you today in this house of worship where we get to remind ourselves every week that we're part of King Heaven, the kingdom of heaven. We're part of the team of Jesus. And we're never alone. Standing with me for the reading of God's word about the triumphal entry. If you got a paper Bible, hold it up. Hold it up, bring it out, hold it up every location. Just look at all the super spiritual people at Waters Church who bring their paper Bible to church. Amen. Luke chapter 19. Now the bad thing is it's a little bit harder to get to the text in a paper Bible. So all the smartphone people can get there real quick. Luke 19, we're going to read the triumphal entry passage. We just saw a little bit of it here in North Otterboro, but we're going to read it in full today for all the locations. Here's what it says. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. And when he drew near Bethpage and Bethany, at the mount that is called the Olivet, he sent two of the disciples, saying, Go into the village ahead of you where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus and throwing their cloaks on the coat, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. And as he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, "If you, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known the day, this day, the things that are making for peace, but now they are hidden from you. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground and you and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. This is the reading of God's word. Let's pray together and ask him to speak to us in this moment. Heavenly Father, we thank you that today we are your people gathered in this house of worship and every other one that is connected to our church. Lord, joining millions, billions of Christians around the world to start Holy Week, to remind ourselves that this is the week that changed the world, changed history changed our lives God became flesh and bore our sins on a cross and I pray God that every ear is open that our minds are renewed that our hearts are transformed that we receive the Word of God humbly gratefully submissively for today God we have a chance to see you do a new work in us through the teaching of your word. And I ask in this moment that every person who hears me now will see Jesus, him and him only. In his mighty name we pray and everybody said, amen, amen. I wanna to talk to you on the message of Jesus in disturbing 
times. God bless you. Have a seat at all locations. The message of Jesus in disturbing times. I've got one thing to share with you before we get to the message, and that is only for North Attleboro. Anybody live in North Attleboro? If you live in North Attleboro, say, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. oh good. There's a few of you. So this Tuesday in North Attleboro, and I don't know other locations. You can look this up for your own, um, your own city or town, but we have an election this Tuesday for the North Attleboro School Committee. I believe that these are some of the most important elections on the planet right now. And I don't tell you who to vote for, but I want to tell you that two people from our church here in North Attleboro are running for the positions on the school committee board. And I just want to give you their names, I'm not telling you who to vote for. <laughs> their names are Marjorie Avarista, that's A-V-R-I-S-T-A, Marjorie, and uh, Aaron Whirl, W-H-I-R-L. And we have checked out these people and asked them and know for a fact that they, in, they do, in fact, know what a woman is. So I'm not telling you who to vote for, but that's happening this Tuesday in North Attleboro. If you care about the future of your country, go vote and make your voice heard. And we're going to do this on a regular basis until this country comes back to some semblance of sanity. Sorry, all the locations that, that I had to address that here. I don't usually do that, so please forgive me. We won't do that again, but I just wanted to make note of that. If you're in-house, take out your notes. They look like this. I want you to fill in the blanks with us. Double-sided today. And if you're not in-house or you are in our churches, but you don't have the paper, you can go to waterschurch.guide. It looks like this. And then you can click on today's message and it will look like that. And then you can fill in the blanks digitally as well. So we always want you to be connected with the word of God and the study of the scriptures. Amen. The message of Jesus in disturbing times. I am disturbed. I am disturbed. Because on Monday of this past week, our Christian and brothers, our Christian brothers and sisters, were targeted for a violent attack hunted down, shot, and murdered for what they believe about biology, what they believe about true science. God made them male and female. What they believe about marriage between a man and a woman. And on Monday in Nashville, Tennessee, a Christian school that has done nothing evil to anyone, nor does it teach to do evil to anyone, was targeted, hunted, and attacked brutally by a transgender individual who formerly attended the school. We do not wish harm on anyone as a church or Christians, but the days of evil and wickedness are upon us. On the heels of this vicious attack, our president got up at a press conference to address the, the shooting and joked for three and a half minutes about ice cream and good-looking children in the audience. And four days later, his press secretary 
got up to make an announcement that they, the White House, our hearts go out to the transgender community as they are under attack right now. This is America, 2023, and this is madness. And some of you are shocked because you haven't heard this. Of course you haven't heard this. Because you are indoctrinated by a news media that has an agenda to reshape our country, to reshape humanity into the image of a secular utopia. To undo the foundations of what makes a human being a human being. To deny the existence of an almighty, morally just God and to distract you from the reality of those truths that can support you and propel you into success. Our country is in a mess. On the heels of this attack, a transgender day of vengeance was scheduled for yesterday, appropriately on the date April 1st. The attacks were supposed to go out across the nation. Transgender day of vengeance. Transgender day of vengeance. Imagine putting any other category of people into that statement and see if they can get away with it. Christian day of vengeance, Muslim day of vengeance, Jewish day of vengeance, the most persecuted people on the face of the earth in all history, Jewish people, don't even have a day of vengeance. But the most coddled, most supported, most celebrated, most, most deified subcategory of our population believes it deserves a day in which to carry out acts of violence against those who disagree with their ideology. This is America 2023, and it is madness. This is where we are, and pastors and preachers in our country had better start speaking up and saying something, because we have a moral obligation, dare I say, a divine obligation to speak out in an age of lies, the truth of scripture louder and more forcefully than ever before. Our country is dying. Our world is going crazy. And preachers are standing by silent. Enough is enough. Now, if you follow me on my YouTube channel, you know that I address these things on a regular basis. And if you don't follow me because you don't like me going there, stinks to be you this morning because I'm going there. This is what needs to be said now more than ever before. Pastors said nothing when our country made homosexual marriage a civil right. Black people, I feel so bad for you. I really do, because your just moral activity of the 1960s was hijacked by a sexually deviant subculture, and they have turned civil rights into sexual deviancy rights. And I'm so upset about how that has happened to you because this is not how it was supposed to be. And I don't think for a second that Martin Luther King Jr. intended for the start of his organization to end where it has become. And we've got to stand up and speak the truth because people are more confused now than ever before. In the wake of these violent attacks on Christians in Nashville, Tennessee, Madonna, are you done with Hollywood yet? Madonna has decided to add a concert in Nashville, Tennessee. For what reason? To raise awareness and raise money to support transgender youth in the very city where the attack happened. Ladies and gentlemen, at some point you've got to wake up and realize that this country and this culture indeed hates you, is out to get you, wants to silence you, would love it if I didn't dare to say these things in public. But you've got a pastor that's not afraid and I've got nothing to lose, and I'm going to say it, and I'm not going to shut up.
And I don't say this for your applause. And I don't say this for your approval. Because these things matter. Our children are watching us. They're watching you, parents. And if you're silent, you're complicit. And if you say nothing, you're part of the problem. And the pastors today who are more interested in building their brands and building their population, popularity, and getting Instagram fame have, are part of the problem as well. Pastors have got to get back to preaching this word. It's not about you. It's about Jesus Christ. And if you don't come to him, you're bound and destined for hell eternally. We've got to speak up. We've got to say something. We've got to do something. If you're in the corporate world, you know the corporate world has been hijacked by DEI, diversity, equity, and inclusion, which is just another moniker for sexual deviancy and its approval and support from you. And you gotta say something and do something and refuse to participate. It might cost you. It might hurt you financially. But the truth is at stake. And our forefathers in the faith went to the lion's dens and went to the stakes and were burned alive and were handed over to brute beasts for the sake of standing for the truth. And they're watching us from heaven, that great cloud of witnesses that is bearing witness to what we're doing right now on this earth. And we've got a responsibility to fight for truth in our generation so that our children are raised not in confusion, but in Christ Jesus. Now more than ever before. On top of all the sexual confusion, madness, there is the open attack and aggressiveness against the pro-life Americans. When Roe v. Wade was overturned, over 100 pro-life centers, pro-life pregnancy resource centers that give free food and, and baby necessities and maternal necessities to women who are in trouble with unexpected pregnancies, over 100 of them were violently attacked, firebombed, destroyed, graffitied, all over their walls, the messages mostly speaking out on their walls, if abortions aren't safe, then you aren't either. On pro-life centers across America, a pro-life center that our church specifically supports, Abundant Hope Pregnancy Resource Center right down the street here in Attleboro, which famously owns a former abortion clinic, by the way. We bought them their ultrasound machine as a church. Your tithes brought, bought them an ultrasound machine many years ago. They were named by Governor Maura Healy last week as a threat, as a threat to society and what's going on in our country. Imagine people who want to save babies in their mother's womb where they should be most protected, being considered a threat by the most powerful person in Massachusetts. This is America in 2023. And by the way, last year we had a banquet with Abundant Hope. It was at a place in Rentham, Massachusetts. I'll let you guess which place it was. And after we held our banquet, our pro-life banquet, working to raise money to save children from abortion, being ripped limb from limb in their mother's womb, ladies and gentlemen. What they refuse to tell you when they're all about women's rights. Where's the right of the woman in the womb of her mother? When we had our, when we had our banquet last October, the staff was watching. I spoke at the banquet. We gave our thoughts and prayers and support financially to that organization. A week later, they got a letter from that, from that resort center, that, that conference center in Rentham, Massachusetts, I'll let you guess which one it was, that they were no longer welcome to their facility based on their views. Discrimination is okay as long as you're on the wrong side of history, as long as you're against the Christian movement and Christian truth. Do not be misled. 
Those against biblical values have power, authority, and the wealth necessary to continue these discouraging realities. This is America in 2023. It only took five years for our White House to go from being draped in the colors of the pride flag in 2015 on the heels of the Obergefell decision from the Supreme Court to being surrounded by barricades in 2020. Five years, and the peace of our culture has been destroyed, has been eradicated, has been replaced by a confusing, disturbing, destructive, demonic organization that is overseeing and in all case, in all points, is winning on almost every front. And I feel so bad for you, the sheep of God's pasture. I really do, my heart goes out to you because I don't work with non-Christians. I work surrounded by Christians and they work for me, which means they have to be doubly nice. They're Christians and I employ them. <laughs> but for you who work amongst the lost, I feel so bad. You're vilified, you're targeted, you're harassed, you're hated. Some of you keep silent, you shouldn't. You should speak up and declare what you believe and not have any qualms about it because you are the light of the world and you are the salt of the earth. And if we don't get out of our salt shaker, we're of no good to this earth. God is looking to us, his church, to say something, to do something, and to speak up in truth. And so we will. This is America 2023, and Christian pastors and churches are silenced on YouTube and Facebook. My own channel, on a regular basis, videos are taken down, squashed, silenced, censored. Why? Because I say things that they don't approve of. This is America 2023. Tweet the wrong thing, and you're suspended. Say that a man cannot get pregnant, and you're vilified. This is the confusion that they want for your children and for you. And some of you have been playing safe for far too long as a Christian. The Christian movement is not a safe movement. Never was, never has been. We were falsely led to believe that America was a Christian nation. All evidence to the contrary, my friends. It is a devoid of values nation. It is a nation that has set itself against the knowledge of God. And it is our job as God's people to stand up and say, thus says the Lord, and if you don't like it, I'm okay with you not liking it. But we will be here to testify to the truth, and you can freely hate us, but we will serve you in love as the people of light, the people of God. That is the church's responsibility in every generation. And I am, if you haven't noticed yet, I figured I'd start this sermon at an eight and ratchet it up to an 11 15 minutes in. I'm disturbed, I'm angry, and I want Jesus to come back. I want Jesus to show up. My heart grieves for the curse that is upon our world. And more now than ever before, I desire the Lord to come home to us and rescue us from this world. So let's talk about Palm Sunday. Because never before, and I mean this, have I felt more sympathy for those pilgrims who worshiped Jesus as he entered the city of Jerusalem 2,000 years ago than I do right now. This is the nation of Israel, a nation that is still around, a miracle nation. The Jews still live in the same land worship the same God, read the same holy book, and speak the same language for 3,500 years. But they have had it rough. 
when Jesus marched into Jerusalem on that day, leaving Zacchaeus' house where he, had free, where he had welcomed the tax collector into the kingdom of God and declared that the Son of Man has come to seek and save that which was lost. The scriptures leave that story with this line in Luke chapter 19, verse 11. You can look at it on the screen. It says that as they heard these things, he proceeded to tell them a parable because he was where? Near to Jerusalem. And because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. So there was an air of anticipation in the atmosphere. Jesus, the miracle-working Nazarene carpenter, the miracle worker, the, the dead-raising, demon-chasing carpenter, the rabbi from Nazareth, is coming into the city, the epicenter city of Israel, the hope of the nation. Every unrest in the Middle East is an argument over the property rights of that city still to this day. And Jesus is walking toward it. His disciples are anticipating as Passover is approaching the most sacred, hallowed week of Israel's calendar year that perhaps this is finally it. The Messiah would come and inaugurate the kingdom of God. What's the word at the end? Immediately. And this is why they wanted it so badly. Because Israel had suffered persecution, hatred and animosity at the hands of foreign powers for 900 years. And they, like you, were probably sick and tired of it, exhausted at being kicked around by the cultural powers of their day. A brief history, if you will indulge me. Israel is called out of Ur of the Chaldees, Abram. He is called out of paganism, idolatry, to found a new nation, a new family, the Israelites, the father of the faith. He comes into the property of Canaan, what we now know as Israel. He dies only owning one thing, a grave for his wife and himself. His generations go further, and they end up multiplying the land. They end up in Egypt. They come out of Egypt through mighty powers under Moses. When they come into the promised land and are led in conquest of that land through Joshua, they own most of the land by that time. And then they beg God for a earthly king. And the king that they get is Saul. Saul's a disaster, and God replaces Saul with a king named David. Anybody know that name? David's the giant, killing, Philistine, butt-kicking king that is anointed by God Almighty. And he elevates the kingdom of Israel, subdues all the enemies around her, and brings peace to that area for the first time in millennia. He has a son named Solomon. Solomon is wise beyond comp comprehension. He elevates the country to its zenith. It's, it's accompanied by uh, international diplomacy and, and social wealth and prosperity. And the, and the country reaches the pinnacle of its existence. This is around 900 B.C. But how many know countries very rarely handle wealth and prosperity well? And little by little, they start to fornicate with the nations around them, prostituting themselves to the idols of the foreigners who surrounded them. And rather than follow God, Yahweh, their God, and his rules, they decided to placate the nations around them, indulging in the same sins we see coming back to our society today. Sexual morality, gender confusion, the murder of the innocents for the sake of prosperity. This was happening 900 years before Christ came. So God handed them over to their enemies. One after another of foreign pagan powers ruling over the people of Israel. 
It began in 800 BC with the nation of Syria. Then it was the Sidonians and the wicked Jezebel ruling over the northern kingdom with her weak-willed husband Ahab. Finally, in 740 BC, the northern nation was invaded by Syria, King Assyria. King Sennacherib came in and thoroughly devastated the nation, enslaved its population, and wiped out their temple and all their religious practices. Interbreeded them with pagans to wipe them off the face of the earth. The southern kingdom of Judah held strong for another 150 years, led by a few moral kings such as Josiah and Hezekiah, but inevitably they deteriorated as well. And in 586 BC, the Babylonians, led by King Nebuchadnezzar, came into that city of Jerusalem, the very city Jesus was entering 2,000 years ago. They came into that city, they burned the temple, they burned the palace, they plucked out the eyes of their king after they killed 14 of his children in front of him and dragged away their young men and their young women into slavery for their lives. Four of those men are most notable to you. You know four of their names, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Thank God that he always has somebody, no matter how dark the world gets, who will stand for righteousness and light in the middle of hardship. And because of those four men, Israel survives the exile of 70 years to Babylon. But then they are subjugated to the, to the Medes who overcome Babylon. And then they're handed over to the Persians who overcome the Medes. And then after the Persians is the Greeks. And the Greeks through Alexander the Great conquer the entire known world. And they insta instigate Greek culture throughout the world. One practice of which the Jews thoroughly uh, uh, supplemented to the Greek culture, the practice of circumcision was put on hold. Why? Because God's people wanted to be accepted by the culture around them instead of stand for the truth that God had given them. And then at the death of Alexander the Great, the, the kingdom of Greece was split into two, the Ptolemies and the, Seleuc the, the Ptolemies and the Seleucids. The Seleucids got the land of Israel, and one of their kings was named Antiochus IV. Antiochus IV decided to thoroughly humiliate and subjugate the Jews. And so he marched into Jerusalem and took a pig, an unclean animal, and sacrificed it on the altar of sacrifice in the temple of Israel to thoroughly humiliate the populace of Israel. And this country had been decimated by one company, one country, one empire after another. Ping pong from world power to world power for 900 years. And so you can understand why in the first century AD, when Jesus, the one who could seemingly beat death, was welcomed with such anticipation that day, 2,000 years ago, as he entered into that city. They were exhausted. They were tired of being beaten up and pushed around. And they wanted action. Like me this week. Like you this week. And if you feel that, Palm Sunday has a lot to say to you. Because it teaches us the true message of Jesus in the midst of disturbing times. So let's unpack this text together. Let's look at three elements from this story that teaches what to know while the world goes crazy around us as Jesus continues to build his church. Number one, I want you to write this down. Jesus rules over every detail of my life. That's the first thing we've gotta know from this text because for a kingly coronation, it takes a crazy turn. I don't know if you saw it, but I saw it in the text. A lot of details, a lot of text is given to something that seems innocuous. For instance, the whole deal about finding the donkey. Why are we given these details? 
Who cares about the donkey? Let's just saddle up and ride in. And when we get to Jerusalem, Jesus, if you don't mind, stringing together another whip and sending our enemies packing. That would be my plan. How about yours? But this is how the text moves. Let's look at verse 29. When he drew near to Bethpage and Bethany at the mount that is called the Olivet, he sent two of his disciples saying, go into the village in front of you where upon entering it, you will find a colt tied in which no one has ever sat. Untie it, bring it here. And if anyone asks you why you're untying it, just say the Lord needs it. What a crazy story. What a weird story. Why this? This is like if Jesus was marching on Washington, D.C., and we were hopefully welcoming him to wipe them all out. Then he says, says to some of you, two of you, he said, hey, come here. We're on the way to Washington, D.C. We're on the way to 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. Uh, you two, come here. I want you to go to Massachusetts Ave. On the corner of Massachusetts Ave, you will find an F-150 pickup. <laughs> Pull down the visor. The keys are up there. The owner leaves them there thinking nobody will steal it. And then start the car and come pick me up. And if anybody asks you, just say, the Lord needs it. <laughs> it's a strange story. Why does this happen? It happens to show us that though Jesus is marching into Jerusalem towards his inevitable death, his crucifixion, his brutal rejection of the Jewish authorities, he is still in charge of every detail that takes place along the way. And so look what it says then in the passage after this, verse 32. So those who were sent went away and found it, what? Just as he had told them. Jesus rules over every detail of your life. He rules over the fact that you got here this morning. He knows you by name. He's in charge of every breath that you have taken up to this point and will take until your final breath. No detail escapes his notice. He's God. And it says in verse 33, and as they were untying the coat, exactly what Jesus said. The owner said, why are you untying the coat? And they said, the Lord needs it. And done. They've secured the transportation for Jesus. Now, liberal scholars really crack me up about this text. I read both conservative and liberal commentators all the time to get perspectives. And the liberal scholars bend over backwards to try to explain for us how this event took place. And what they suggest is ridiculous. They said Jesus went into the city the day before alone and worked out the agreement with the owner of the cult beforehand then came back to his disciples and marched into the city with their disciples and then to impress them, he decided to send them ahead to the place where he had already secured his Uber ride into Jerusalem for that afternoon. This is what liberal scholars have to do because they deny the miraculous. They deny the authority of scripture. Here's the reality. This is Jesus. This is God in flesh. He knows stuff. He can do stuff. He can change things. And he rules over even the small things in your life. John's gospel, John chapter one tells us that Jesus knows people before he meets them. Nathaniel comes to Jesus, he says, I saw you when you were sitting on the fig tree and Philip came and got you. And Nathaniel says, how'd you know that? You must be the son of God. He says, that ain't nothing. Wait till you follow me for three years. He knows what you're thinking. While you're thinking it, several times in the Gospels, it says Jesus, knowing their thoughts, 
Some of you are afraid to sin because you know that God is watching you. I've got even worse news for you. He doesn't just watch what you do. He knows what you think. Happy Easter. <laughs> Jesus knows people before he meets them. He knows their thoughts before they tell them. He knows the thoughts of those around them. He knows what people will do before they do it. He predicted Judas's betrayal and Peter's denial and the abandonment of all the other disciples. Jesus knew that you'd be here this morning. At all of our locations, you are not an accident. You are not an afterthought. You might think that you're doing somebody a favor by being here today. I've got news for you. God orchestrated all the events beforehand to move on your life to get you to this place so that you would hear that God loves you and wants to save you and bring you home to heaven. No one, absolutely no one, is beyond the rule and authority of King Jesus. And the reason for this, this event of securing his ride into Jerusalem was twofold, to prove that he was completely in charge of what was about to happen that whole week and to fulfill scripture. Zechariah chapter nine, verse nine, prophesied that when Israel's Messiah would come, Rejoice greatly, it says, O daughter of Zion, shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem, behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So the anticipation is in the air. Jesus is fulfilling scripture. He knows all the details. Every detail of your life is under the domain of God. And some of you say, well, that's not good news for me, pastor, because I've had a horrible year. I just got a diagnosis from the doctor. I can't understand why God would allow this to happen. Some of you are looking at the events of this last week and say, how could a loving God allow his children to be murdered? And for every person that asks those questions, I want to say, first of all, and most importantly, your questions are valid. Your feelings are understood. And I want to address them for you, if you don't mind, with three simple answers. Whenever anybody asks me how a good God can allow bad things to happen, I say three things. Here's the things I want you to write down so that you can have them for yourself. Number one, if there is no God, then bad events do not matter. If there is no God, then bad events do not matter. And, and if bad events bother you, why? What's the big deal? If all we are, as Martin Luther King Jr. said, is flotsam and jetsam spinning around the world, spinning around the sun every 365 days, then it really doesn't matter. But the fact that it bothers you betrays the reality that you know something's not right, something's off kilter, something's not, wrong, not, not going the way it should. I've got news for you, Christians and non-Christians alike. Scripture has an answer for that. The world was in peace. The world was in righteousness. The world was completely as it should be. And Adam surrendered to the devil's voice. And we've been in bondage ever since. Bondage to decay, corruption, destruction, hatred, animosity, division. This is the domain of Satan. If anybody wants to know what hell looks like, just look at the trajectory of our culture for the past 30, 40 years. It gets worse. As you live into the domain of Satan and division and hostility and hatred, that's where it goes to. Confusion, desperation, poverty, unsafe streets, murder, violence. These are the fruits of wickedness. And the things that bother you are pointing to the reality that you know that the earth is not as it should be. And the good news and the last thing I like to tell people is Jesus took the worst things of all upon himself at the cross 2,000 years ago. Unlike Hinduism, unlike Islam, unlike atheism or any other ism out there, our Savior, our leader, our founder went 
through the worst suffering in human history for us. He was stripped naked in front of his mother and his friends. He was beaten. His beard was pulled out. A crown of thorns was shoved down onto his skull, whipped with 39 lashes by the cat of nine tails. His skin was literally filleted off of his body by the time they nailed him to the cross. The nails pierced his hands, his feet. They dropped him into a hole, and he literally suffocated for six hours on that cross, bleeding, naked, exposed, shamed, vilified, reviled, hated, mocked, scorned by the public as they walked past him and blew him off. Jesus did that as God in the flesh. Why? To take hell for you. He went through hell so that you don't have to go to hell. He undid the work of Satan. He undid the failures of Adam. He trusted God implicitly and suffered for it 100% so that you don't have to suffer for your sins. My friends, this is good news for anyone who places their faith in Jesus Christ because on the cross he said it is finished, which means that your payment for your sins is complete and full in Jesus' blood. And God will never hold you accountable for the sins that you've committed past, present, and future. They are paid in Jesus Christ. This is the good news of the gospel. Will God judge me? Yes, he'll judge you for what you did with what he gave you. That's the judgment of works, the bema seed of Christ. And we're all responsible for what God gives us. Live gratefully and, just, and, and joyfully. But the reason why bad things happen point to the fact of number two. In your notes, I want you to write this down. Jesus knows every physical problem points to a spiritual answer. Every physical problem points to a spiritual answer. What's the physical problem of our world? Unrequited evil. Injustice allowed. And lawlessness increasing. What was the physical problem of ancient Israel 2,000 years ago? They were subjugated. They were, they were occupied by a foreign pagan force known as the Roman Empire. They had little rights. There was a puppet regime in place by the name of Pilate. Pilate was a ruthless, brutal dictator over the city of Jerusalem. Historians tell us on one particular Sabbath, he crucified 2,000 Jews just to show his power over them. 2,000 Jews. After 800 years of being kicked around from nation to nation and empire to empire, you would be just like the Jews on that day, begging and hoping and pleading that Jesus Christ had come to restore the kingdom to David. The Messiah would finally win a political battle for all of them. Verse 37 shows us what's happening, though. Gives us a picture of how Jesus reacts to this moment. He drew near on the way down to the Mount of Olives. The disciples began to rejoice, praise God. They said, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven, glory in the high. They're believing for a political revolution. Now, John's gospel tells us in John 12, 13, that they took palm branches and they waved them as they came out to meet him. And the reason why is because the palm branch in ancient Israel was a symbol of political revolution. Now, I've been pastoring this church for almost 20 years now, and we've had almost 20 Palm Sundays, and I've got a pro tip for you. We never give you a palm branch on the way in on Palm Sunday. Some of you are wondering, where is my palm branch right now? And I understand why. Because you're tied to a religious tradition and actually not the truth of Scripture. 
First off, let me elude any of your concerns. You already have two palms with you. But number two, 90 years before Jesus arrived in Jerusalem, under the Greeks authoritarian regime, there was a man, again, I told you about him, Antiochus IV, who had sacrificed a pig on the altar and subjugated the Jews to horrible torture and abuse. Finally, the Jews revolted, led by a man named Simon Maccabeus. Some of you are from the Catholic background. Your Catholic Bibles have the book of First and Second Maccabees still in them. It was the story of a Jewish revolt 90 years before Jesus came. Simon Maccabeus marched in with his army into the city of Jerusalem, to overthrow the kingdom of the Greeks. And he won a decisive battle against the odds, against Antiochus IV, and kicked the Greeks out of Jerusalem and regained the city for the Jews. But it was only temporary because the Romans would come in and destroy it. But while he was marching into the city, the Jews waved palm branches as a sign of political revolution. Ladies and gentlemen, the people who were watching Jesus come into that city that day were expecting another Simon Maccabeus part two. They were expecting, though, this time it would work and it would last. But Jesus didn't come for a political revolution. He came for a spiritual transformation. So they're waving palm branches. Mark 11, verse 9 tells us this, that not only were they waving the palm branches, but they were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They're quoting Psalm 118 there, by the way. But the word Hosanna is of particular relevance because the word Hosanna means, Lord, save now! Lord, save now. We, we want revolution. We want political transformation. I don't know if that's you today, but it's me. Like I said, I resonate with these people today more than ever before in my life. I want it to change. I want Jesus to come back. I want him to open a can. You know that there is a version of Jesus called open a can Jesus. He chased them out of the temple. He made a whip. He's, he, he, he's overthrew the tables. I'd love him to do that right now in our country. But he's still got work to do. And the work is pointed to in Luke chapter 19. Some of the Pharisees, the Bible says, back to the text, some of the Pharisees were, were, were worried about the revolutionary vibe going on around Jesus. So they said, teacher, rebuke your disciples. And what does Jesus say for the first time ever? He doesn't tell anybody to stop praising him he actually encourages it and says if they stay silent the stones are going to cry out it's the only time in his life that Jesus said yes praise worship I've got work to do and the work that I've got to do is going to save your soul in verse 41 around all the accoutrements of a political revolution palm branches waving hosanna chants being sung Jesus riding in a conquering hero on the way into the most divisive the most hotbedded city in ancient history and world history with all of that in the air what is Jesus doing the scripture says in verse 41 that as he drew near the city he wept over it and the word for weeping here is not a tear running down his eye or cheek. The word for weeping is heaving, sobbing. Violent sobs were coming from Jesus as he looked upon the city that rejected him. Ladies and gentlemen, when God judges a person and sends them to hell, he never rejoices over it. He weeps. He weeps over those who refuse to hear the good news of the gospel. He takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. Ezekiel tells us that. He weeps for you if you are disconnected from him right now because he knows what it will cost you. 
and what it will do to you. And Jesus said in verse 42, would that you, even you, Jerusalem. Why the even you? Because Jerusalem's name meant city of peace. City of peace. And it was anything but. In just five days from now, they would brutally, brutally torture Christ and nail him to a cross. The Prince of Peace, brutally tortured in the city of peace. And he says, even if you had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. They were blinded. Why? They were blinded because they wanted political revolution instead of spiritual transformation. Let me make sure that you write this down so that you get it as I had to get it this week as I studied this text. Sometimes we, what we want to happen in life can blind us to the salvation God offers us. Oh God, I want you to fix things. God, I want you to re replace people in powerful positions. God, I want you to solve my problems. Be careful of that kind of Christianity, my friend. Be careful, because you might get what you want and miss what you need. You might get that marriage healed, that disease cured, that problem that you so desperately want changed in your life. People come to church, God fixed my marriage. But he wants to change your heart and how you respond to your spouse. Some of you say, God fixed this nation. But he wants to save your soul and give you the boldness to speak up and make a change with your mouth. God, I want you to change my situation, but he has come to make you content in whatever situation you find yourself in. That's the meaning of the phrase, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. It was written by a man in prison, a man whose rights had been ripped from him, injustice had been bestowed upon him, and he sits in a Roman prison, unable to leave and move, and he writes to the Philippian church, I know what it's like to be hungry and full, poverty and riches, well-fed and starving. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength because God doesn't just change our circumstances. He changes the person in the circumstances so that you can face the circumstances with hope and joy no matter what they are against you. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. He's come to change our hearts. And Jerusalem missed it. The political revolution that they so desperately wanted blinded them from the spiritual transformation that Jesus came to offer them. Which brings me to point number three. Jesus offers every person an escape, an escape from God's perfect judgment. There's a hard text to be read in this passage that we are discussing this morning. And it was kind of funny as I studied this text, I saw that hardly anybody wanted to deal with it because it's really dark. But I need to deal with it so that you get a picture of what it's really about, what's God teaching us through this text. And it says here in Luke chapter 19, verse 43, as Jesus is weeping over the city's rejection of him, he knows what's coming. He knows about all of their rejecting, rejection of him. He, does, he, he announces judgment. Verse 43, for the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. It's a dark picture that Jesus paints for this city. The city that would crucify God in the flesh. Here's the reality. You can't reject Jesus and get away with it. You can't run from him and benefit from it. Some of you, that's you right now. You're running from him. 
Some of you right now, you're putting up the wall. You're putting up the rejection. You're putting up the hard heart. You're putting up your excuses. You're throwing your excuses, and you're, you're, you're playing the mental gymnastics right now with me. Well, this is why I don't believe. Well, this is why I don't believe. Well, this is, I understand all those issues that you might have. I've heard them all before, but you can't hide from the one who made you. And you can't run from the one who knows you. And all those Christians that hurt you, they didn't die for you. He died for you. And you're not beholden to please them. You're beholden to answer to him. And at the end of the day, there's one eternal judge who will make a just judgment over every single human life that has ever lived on the face of the earth. And his name is not me, my name. His name is Jesus Christ. And the city that would reject him would be judged for it 40 years later. Historians tell us that Jesus was crucified around 33, 34, 36 A.D. Forty years later, the Jews would revolt one final time against the Roman Empire. One final time. In 66 A.D., they rejected the Roman procreator. They rejected the Roman rule and violently attacked soldiers who were overseeing the region. So the emperor sent General Titus to surround the city with a wall, a barricade, just like Jesus says, was built around the, wall, around the city. The Jews in revolt burned the, burned the wall down. They did not want to be ruled. So the emperor sent General Titus into the city and the whole army surrounded the Jerusalem city, AD 70. They starved out the victims, for this, the, the population of the city for four months. Five months in, they turned to cannibalism, killing each other in absolute destitution. When they were thoroughly weakened by the Roman siege of the city, General Titus marched his troops into the city and burned it to the ground, destroyed the temple, destroyed the palace, destroyed Herod's buildings. All of the glorious buildings that the disciples were overwhelmed with were tossed over, turned to judgment. Why? Because of what Jesus said. You did not know the time of your visitation. God spoke to you. God came to you and you rejected him. And now you're left to the judgment that comes upon all who reject the Lord of glory. Is that you? Is that gonna be your life? Is that gonna be, is that gonna be someone here? Because here's the thing, you don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. Our streets are unsafe. Our schools are unsafe. Our country is unsafe. This could be the last Sunday you're ever in church. I don't say that to scare you. I say that to save you, to wake you up to the reality that there's one judge, there's one life giver, there's one who came to die for you and bear your sins. And the good news of the gospel is this, that God is not out to get you. He's out to save you and spare you because Jesus took the judgment for you at the cross 2,000 years ago. He says in John chapter 5, verse 24, Truly I say to you, whoever hears my words and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. That's the offer of the gospel. That's what Jesus is still doing until he comes again. And when he comes again, judgment. First time, mercy. Second time, judgment. This is the day of salvation. Don't harden your heart, Hebrews says, but repent and believe the good news.